sexual relations with another man and hide this from her husband, and there might not be anyone to tell him that his wife committed that sin. Her husband might never know about the wrong thing she did, and she might not tell her husband about her sin. But the husband might begin to think that his wife sinned against him, whether she has or not. He might become jealous. He might begin to believe that she is not pure and true to him. If that happens, he must take his wife to the priest. The husband must also take an offering of eight cups of barley flour. He must not pour oil or incense on the barley flour. The barley flour is a grain offering to the Lord that is given because the husband is jealous. This offering will show that he thinks his wife has been unfaithful to him. The priest will take the woman before the Lord and make her stand there. Then he will take some special water and put it in a clay jar. He will put some dirt from the floor of the holy tent into the water. He will force the woman to stand there before the Lord. Then he will loosen her hair and put the grain offering in her hand. This is the barley flour that her husband gave because he was jealous. At the same time, he will hold the clay jar of special water. This is the special water that can bring trouble to the woman. Then the priest will make the woman promise to tell the truth and say to her, If you have not slept with another man, and if you have not sinned against your husband while you were married to him, then this water that causes trouble will not hurt you. But if you have sinned against your husband, if you had sexual relations with a man who is not your husband, then you are not pure. If that is true, you will have much trouble when you drink this special water. You will not be able to have any children, and if you are pregnant now, the baby will die, and the Lord will cause your people to speak evil of you and curse you. Then the priest must tell the woman to make an oath. She must agree for the Lord to cause these things to happen to her if she lies. The priest must say, You must drink this water that causes trouble. If you have sinned, you will not be able to have children. Any baby you have will die before it is born. And the woman should say, I agree to do as you say. The priest should write these warnings on a scroll. Then he should wash the words off into the water. Then the woman must drink the water that brings trouble. This water will enter her, and if she is guilty, it will cause her much suffering. Then the priest will take the grain offering from her, the offering for jealousy, and raise it before the Lord. Then he will carry it to the altar. The priest will fill his hands with some of the grain and put it on the altar and let it burn there. After that, he will tell the woman to drink the water. If the woman has sinned against her husband, the water will bring her trouble. The water will go into her body and cause her much suffering. Any baby that is in her will die before it is born, and she will never be able to have children. All the people will turn against her. But if the woman has not sinned against her husband, she is pure. The priest will say that she is not guilty. Then she will be normal and able to have children. So this is the law about jealousy. This is what you should do when a woman sins against her husband while she is married to him. Or if the man becomes jealous and thinks his wife has sinned against him, this is what the man should do. The priest must tell her to stand before the Lord. Then the priest will do all these things. This is the law. The husband will not be guilty of doing anything wrong, but the woman will suffer if she has sinned. This is the word of the Lord.
That was a strange passage, wasn't it? <laughs> we have a habit in this church, we preach through you know, whole books of the Bible at a time, and every once in a while we hit these, these troublesome passages, so we're going we're gonna to work through this troublesome passage today. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we ask for your help, and we ask that you would uh, reveal yourself uh, to us this day. I pray that uh, these words of ancient scripture would make a sense to us uh, here, to us in our time, uh, and we pray that you would uh, illuminate our minds even as you uh, illuminated the minds of, of the prophets who wrote these words. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So when you walked into the sanctuary this morning, uh, you walked underneath a sign. I don't know how many of you even noticed it. You walked under a sign that reads, for God's glory and by God's power, we are a fellowship of sinners who worship God, study God's word, love all people, and share the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That's the mission a statement of Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church. It was written by Elder uh, Carolyn Hudnut. It was adopted by our session, I don't know, about 10 years ago. A few people who have seen that sign have been surprised by it. A few have taken exception to what it says to, uh, to our mission statement. What do you mean they say, you're a fellowship of sinners. Isn't this a church? Isn't a church a gathering of saints? And aren't sinners those unrepentant people outside who have not yet come into the family of God? In our worship service, which is arranged along traditional, reformed, and Presbyterian lines, in our worship service every week we have a unison prayer of confession, we do that early, in the early part of the service, just after our call to worship, after our prayer of invocation and our opening hymn, a prayer of confession and admission of guilt is how we begin worship in a Presbyterian church. And I've had a few people who've been surprised by our prayer of confession. I've had a few take exception to this very traditional Presbyterian practice. Why are you confessing your sins all over again? They say, if you're a Christian, your sins are washed away. Why keep bringing them up to God? Well, there are a whole bunch of reasons. There are some biblical reasons. There are some theological reasons. There are some historical reasons. There are some pastoral reasons. There are some psychological reasons for this practice. I want to talk about a couple of them today. I grew up in a church uh, that didn't have this kind of practice, and so it doesn't come to me naturally, but I've been with the Presbyterians for about 30 years now, and over time I've become convinced of its wisdom. And so I want to talk about a couple of the reasons that we as Presbyterians, as Reformed people, have this ongoing recognition that we are sinners uh, and this ongoing uh, practice of confession and worship. So I want to begin with a couple of biblical examples. In 1 John chapter 1, the Apostle John is writing to the church. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to converted people. He's writing to the church. And he says to them, if we claim to be without sin... 
Notice the tense of the verb. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. All of the verbs are in the present tense. The apostle John is talking about now. He's not talking about the past. He's not talking about how these people used to be. He's talking about how they are now. And John says to these people, to people who are already Christians, he says to them, you are lying to yourselves if you say you have no sin. Now, John isn't saying this by way of condemnation. He's not browbeating these people. He's not saying this by way of condemnation because for Christians there is no condemnation, right? Those of us who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. John is saying this because he wants his people to take full advantage of the remedy that has been offered to them. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's what he wants them, these people to do. And so in a Presbyterian church, we keep confessing our sins. We confess our new sins. We don't dig up old sins. The past is gone and it's forgotten. But we confess our fresh sins so that we're able to keep moving forward. This is why we do it. We're not stuck in the past, but we're heading forward. Look what we did this morning. Here's the the prayer that we prayed this morning. Our Father and our God, we come before you with humble and contrite hearts, grieved by our many sins. We have looked away from you and followed our own desires. Well, how many of you born-again Christians looked away from God and followed your own desires this past week? I know I did. That prayer is for me. We have ignored the needs of others and focused on ourselves. All right, how many of you born-again Christians ignored the needs of others and focused on yourselves this past week? I know I did. That prayer's for me. Our eyes have wandered, succumbing to lust, greed, and hatred. All right, born-again Christians. How many of you were guilty of this this past week? I know I was. This prayer is for me. Lord, forgive us, we pray. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We do this at the beginning of the service so that we can come into the service and be in the presence of holy God without fear. He's not going to strike us dead. Our sins are forgiven. Okay, If you sin between the time of your prayer of confession and the rest of the service, you're really in trouble, okay? I don't, I don't have, I got nothing for you guys, all right? But you got to button yourselves up during that time. Example number two. In Romans chapter seven, the apostle Paul writes, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, is what I do. I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do. This I keep on present progressive. I keep on doing. 
Now, Paul isn't pointing fingers at anybody. He's talking about his own religious struggles. He's talking about himself as a saint. There's no doubt that the Apostle Paul was a born-again Christian, but even he wrestled with sin in an ongoing way. He uses the present progressive tense of the verb. It isn't that Paul once was a sinner and then came to Christ and then stopped being a sinner. Not at all. Paul was a sinner and then he came to Christ and he continued to be a sinner. A redeemed sinner. A sinner who is running the good race. A sinner who is in the process of sanctification. But a sinner. Nonetheless, okay, two examples. There are other ones in scriptures, but those are two good ones. Now, let me talk to you about the pastoral reasons about why we confess our sins. These, by the way, are reasons that I've only discovered by being a pastor. I mean, being a, being a pastor is a very weird job uh, because I know you. All right, I know your lives. I mean, some of you are hiding, but most of you, I, I, know, I, know, I know your life. I've, I've been in your house. I've heard your stories. I know what's going on in your life. I have access to you in a special way. And what I've discovered in my time as a pastor is that people who have trouble admitting their ongoing sins, people who have trouble with the idea that a Christian might truly be born again and still wrestle with sin, those people get into the worst trouble. And they often self-destruct. If I feel free to admit that yet again I messed up, if I feel free to admit that I'm still wrestling with sin in my life, if I feel free to admit that I'm not fully sanctified, if I feel free to tell the truth about who I am, I'm actually able to be more successful in defeating the sin in my life. But if I think that admitting sin in my life would expose me as someone who's not truly a Christian, then rather than fixing the sin in my life, what I do is I put up a, put up a front, a false facade that I want the church to see, I want the world to see, and I end up being more concerned about appearances than about reality. It is a biblical truth that we're born in sin. And that even if we're born again, we don't fully shed, oh, that baby is so beautiful. Did you see that baby back there? Woo! Look at that baby. Wow, that's Sebastian. Um, where was I? We're born in sin. And even if we're born again, we will continue to sin. We don't fully shed our sin nature, our old fallen nature. We will one day. The day will come when we'll see Jesus face to face and this trouble's going to be over. Uh, but for right now, we're kind of stuck in this. I mean, the good news is that when we have our great going home, when we have our reunion in glory, we will no longer be a fellowship of sinners. Okay? When we finally see Jesus face to face, 
the old nature is going to be gone 100% when we finally reach the promised land. We will be sin free, but we're not there yet. We're on the journey. We're on the way. This is the pilgrimage. We're still in the wilderness. This morning, we continue in our series of sermons through the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is the book of the people of God going across the wilderness. Okay, you remember in the book of Exodus, they get out of slavery. They've been saved. They've been redeemed by God out of slavery. But they're not yet in the promised land. They've got 40 years before they get to the promised land. And the book of Numbers is about what's going on in this journey. It is a very Christian book because our entire Christian lives are lived between the time when we've been redeemed, when we got born again, and that time when we're finally home in glory. And it's all going to be fine. Okay, We know where we're going. Ah, there's a lot of bumps along the way. And the book of Numbers teaches us about those bumps. This morning, we have this very kind of strange chapter, which is about what the people of God will do when there's sin in the people of God. You remember, you know, they've gone, they've gotten out of Egypt. They're there in the wilderness. They've gone to Mount Sinai. They've gotten the law. Uh, God has organized the camp. He's laid out where everyone is going to be. He's given them instructions about the tabernacle and how the worship is supposed to happen. Uh, God is beginning to form these people who were not a people into his people. He's shaping them up. He's creating a nation. They weren't a nation before. He's going to create a nation. He's preparing them for when they're going to go into the promised land. It's a very exciting time. Something new is about to happen. There's an exhilaration because they're launching into a new enterprise. They're beginning a new colony of the people of God. Israel was just starting. God was creating them. There are utopian dreams. There are endless possibilities for these people, but God raises the question, but what are we going to do when you mess up? Mature organizations at the outset prepare for people's misbehavior. Because people will misbehave. A mature organization takes into consideration what to do when something breaks, when something goes wrong. Now, that can be hard at the beginning because we're so full of starry-eyed optimism and youthful naivete. I mean, think about newlyweds. They're so in love with each other. They're soulmates. They envision an unlimited future together. And... They don't feel like that's the time to talk about well, what we're going to do when things go wrong. But the reality is that people who are getting married need to talk about what they're going to do when things go wrong before they get married. They need to ask the question, well, what are we going to do if unfaithfulness creeps into this marriage? What are we going to do if my spouse turns out to be a big, fat jerk? At the outset... In the courtship, we think, oh, 
I will never be unfaithful. My spouse will never be unfaithful. We are totally into each other. We are totally enamored of each other. We only have eyes for each other. At the beginning, we think, oh, I don't need to worry about that because my beloved is wonderful. My beloved is helpful and kind and would never be a jerk. Maybe other people need to talk about that, but not us. Wrong. There is a reason why marriage vows say for better or for, yeah. Legal contracts are binding and they are only needed in the four worse situations. So here's Israel, baby nation, just been rescued out of slavery. They're about to be born. They're like the pilgrims crossing on the a, a Mayflower across the Atlantic Ocean. They're not yet to the new country. They're filled with idealism. They're grateful for their escape from oppression. But what are they going to do when some of the people get off that boat and get into the new country and go bad? What's Plymouth Bay Colony going to do when some of the redeemed of the Lord turn out to be faithless? Healthy organizations ask this question. Healthy organizations know their purpose. Healthy organizations have clearly defined lines of leaderships, but healthy organizations also have systems of dealing with people who are not with the program, with people who are pulling in a different direction, with people who are off the rails, with people who are just plain bad. Now, that's hard to admit, but even if we are with the people that we love best, and who could we love more than our church family, even if we're with the people that we love best, there will be sin. There will be bad actors. There will be misbehavior. There will be insult and injury and worse. And so if we're going to be smart and mature and organize an institution that's going to survive the troubles of life, if we're going to build a ship that sails not only in good weather but also in storms, then we need to have a procedure in place for dealing with sin. And that's Numbers chapter 5. Now, Numbers chapter 5... has three little sections... It talks about three different kinds of sin. The sins, of course, have been defined in the book of Exodus where the law is given. They've been repeated in the book of Deuteronomy where they're repeated. But here we have a sample of three different kinds. One is the sin of defilement in verses 1 through 4. Those of you who've got the little text there in front of you, you might want to mark off verses 1 through 4. This all has to do with uh, uh, things being unclean, which has to do with ritual defilement. The second set are um, sins of transgression. This is where we actually hurt someone else, what we usually think about as being sin. That's verse 5 through 10. And then the final is the sins of faithlessness or idolatry, which is the long passage that, that Jordan 
that Jordan read. So I want to talk about uh, those three things quickly. I'm going to try to watch the time here. John's going to help me watch the time as well because um, i got more material than I can possibly pack into this thing. So we'll, we'll do the best we can. If you think about God as your maker and if you think about the law of God as the operating instructions, sin or the violation of the law of God becomes a kind of chaos in the system. The law of Moses is deeper than I think we appreciate and here in the book of Numbers we see some of the richness and the complexity of this law revealed to us. So let's first talk about the sin of defilement. This, this idea of sin of defilement is very strange to us as Christians. So under the Jewish law there is this idea that you can be um, ritually unfit to go into a place of worship. Okay? Now, as Christians, like anybody can walk in here. If you have your clothes on, anybody can walk into the sanctuary. No one's going to turn you away. All right? That's not how it used to be. There were a number of different things that could prevent you from going into worship. One of them was touching a dead body. Another one would be to have an, uh, uh, an emission from your body. Uh, another uh, of them would be to have a skin disease. Okay? And so these were, these were situations of ritual uncleanness. And... There's something that's underneath this. And first of all, I want you to understand this ritual uncleanness has nothing to do uh, with a disease, all right? Um, I mean, you can have a skin disease that makes you ritually unclean, but the skin disease is separate from the ritual uncleanness. This has to do, the common root of, of these things is that they're all connected with death, okay? So if you touch a dead body... If you have an emission from your body, which has to do with part of your body being separated from your body, the problem with the skin disease is that part of your body comes off of your body. So all of these are images of death, and there is this recognition that somehow the worship of God cannot have any contact with the dead, and that anybody who's in any contact with the dead cannot be allowed to enter in. To worship. Now we know from the New Testament that parts of the Old Testament are given to us as figures or images of something that's deeper. I think this is one of those cases. Ritual uncleanness is an image that we are not fit to stand in the presence of God because as fallen human beings, the very principle of death has become part of us okay this is not a sin that we commit but you and I are the living dead okay we're zombies we're walking around in a body of death and in some weird way this makes us not allowed to be in the presence of God. The prophet Isaiah picks up on this in a couple of ways. In his call narrative, uh, the prophet Isaiah says, Woe to me, I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips. doesn't mean that he's got a potty mouth. Okay? It means that he's ritually unclean. And I, live, and I dwell in the midst of people of an unclean lips. Okay, he's saying that by their very nature, he himself, 
who's being called to be a prophet, is ritually unclean. And he lives in a nation of people who are ritually unclean. And he's worried about this because he's being called as a prophet to be in the presence of God. Okay, you remember the Moses goes up to the mountain and he goes up and he's actually in the presence of God. And in some sense, he's a buffer between God and the people. The people don't want to have anything to do with God. Moses comes down and they actually ask Moses to put a veil on his face because he's so dangerous. All right, so when Isaiah gets called, he's being called into the presence of God, but he knows that he's in this body of death and he's afraid what's going to happen to him. And he's like, whoa, woe, woe is me. This is terrible. All right, this is recognition that we have this problem. All right, it is true that we are sinful people, but there's another problem. We also are walking around in bodies of death. And later in Isaiah 64, Isaiah uh, says, we have all become like one who is unclean, ritually unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like unclean garments, are like polluted garments. Now keep in mind, the righteous deeds really are righteous. They really are good and godly, but... Because they're coming out of a body of death, they're tainted. Isaiah is talking about a situation where even the good deeds that you're doing can't be in the presence of God. Why? Because you're in a body of death. The salvation that we need is actually deeper than our actions. Okay? We need to be saved uh, even in our, body, in our body of death. Paul puts it this way in Romans 7, 24. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, the answer is Jesus Christ. All right. So that's one side of it. So the first is we have, we have this ritual uncleanness, which is really connected with uh, human bodies uh, that have death, the stink of death about them. The second one is the sin in a way that we're more accustomed to thinking about it. Usually when we think about sin, it's when we do something wrong against someone, when we injure them, uh, when we hurt somebody, okay, when we assault somebody. So uh, in verses 5 through 8, we have the sins of transgressions. According to God's law, we're not supposed to injure other people, okay? Uh, but notice what we read in verse 6. You might do something wrong to another person, all right? So they've already been told to not do wrong things to other people, but now what we have is instructions. Okay, when you do something wrong, what are you going to do about it? I told you not to do it, which is helpful, but actually what's more helpful is, okay, I told you not to do it, but here's what you're going to do when you do it, because I know you're going to do it. Okay, I, I know you're going to get into trouble. You might do something wrong to another person. What, when you do that, you are really sinning against God. A couple things to notice here is, is that our sin against the other person is raised to a higher level. It becomes a sin against God. If I go to Bruno's house and break in, and steal his soccer ball. It's gold-plated. It's a gold-plated soccer ball. Okay? If I go into his house and steal his gold-plated soccer ball, and I get arrested, and I get hauled into court, that court case will be called the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Daniel Paul Morrison. 
It won't be Bruno Sousa versus Daniel Paul Morrison because I've, in fact, uh, insulted the lawgiver, and in this case, it would be the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. In ancient Israel, God was the state, and so that an offense against your neighbor is an offense against God. Okay, I'm sitting, my timekeeper back there is telling me that uh, I, got, I got some troubles here. Okay, all right, all right, so... Darn. Okay, well, l- let me wrap up on this pretty quickly then. A um, couple things to notice here is when you do something wrong against another person, you've done something wrong against God, and you're supposed to then confess your sin. All right? Confess your sin. You may have noticed that when people get in trouble, what makes us most upset about them is that they, they lie about it. I mean, it's bad enough that they did the thing, but the person who does the thing and then lies about it or doesn't admit it, man, those people just make us crazy. All right? You are going to sin. All right? After you sin, admit it. Best thing that you could possibly do. And then the th- next thing you need to do is you need to re- repay the cost. If, if you've injured somebody, you need to figure out how uh, you can repay that. Our offenses are against God, which makes our actions more serious, but we also need to understand that from the other side of that, if you've been the injured party, I've broken into Bruno's house and I've stolen his golden soccer ball, his obligation is to allow God's vengeance to settle the matter. Okay, he won't come after me because he knows that God will come after me because the offense is against God. I think we're going to have to come back to the last section of this. The last section really has to do with uh, spiritual unfaithfulness. Um, let, let, me, let me say this because I don't want to send anybody home with a misapprehension of this very strange passage. Uh, the The last example has to do with a case of a jealous husband thinking that his wife has cheated on him. What are you going to do about? What are you going to do about that? And so what they do is they have like some water and they take some dust off the floor in the sanctuary and they write some words and they rub the words off into the water and the woman drinks it and she's taken a vow before the priest. Okay, the vow is, is that if if I did. If I did commit adultery, that I'll be infertile. All right. What's important to see in this is that the water that the woman is drinking is completely harmless. Okay. There's nothing in that water that would hurt the woman. Okay. And so it's a way of resolving the jealousy of the husband. If the woman is guilty of this, it'll have to be a supernatural act from God that'll make her sterile. Or maybe it'll be a psychosomatic reaction that'll cause her, her body uh, to react in this way, to maybe to, to miscarry the child or something like that. But there's nothing intrinsically dangerous in what she's drinking. Okay? This is a way of solving a couple of problems. One is the problem of jealous husbands. Okay? Uh, we can be very irrational. Okay? And you know how it is when someone accuses you of something, you can't, you can't prove what you haven't done, right? So you, if, you got, if you're living with someone who's jealous, there's, there's just no way that you're going to satisfy them. They're just, they're just going to be jealous. This places 
this in the hands of God. I'm not going to be the judge of my spouse, but God will be the judge of my spouse. Okay? And so this woman takes this vow uh, in front of him. But we have to talk about this more next time. Um, let me... Uh, yeah, let me just close in a word of prayer. Father God, we love you and adore you. We thank you that uh, your law keeps us safe. Um, Lord, I, I pray that when we do sin, that we would respond in a, in a godly way. Lord, there are two options. Uh, when we sin, we can run to you or we can run away from you. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would trust you as a father who loves us, that when we sin, that we would run to you. I pray that we would confess our sins. I pray that we would put things right as quickly as we can. Lord, keep us in the center of your will and in your way. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.